0: Hello and welcome to Decoding the Gurus. It's the podcast where an anthropologist and a psychologist listen to the greatest minds the world has to offer and we try our very best to understand what they're talking about. I'm Professor Matt Brown and with me is Associate Professor Chris Kavanagh. Who are we? What's our deal? Well, we're like the odd couple if one of the characters was a grumpy, combative Irishman. Welcome, Chris.
1: No, oh, I'm, I'm impressed with your impromptu intro. <laughs> I thought you didn't have one ready, so that's just impressively off the cuff. But uh, Yeah, good good morning, Mark. How's, mm. how's
0: it going? It's going pretty well. Now, as you know, sometimes, just sometimes, we have special guests on who are going to help us figure out what is true, beautiful, and real in this crazy mixed-up world, and today... Is one of those days. Who have we got with us today, Chris? We have
1: Jesse, single author, podcaster, journalist, internet <laughs> hero, legend. <laughs>
2: I thought I thought you guys were going to say sometimes we have special guests, sometimes we have average guests, like today. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, no, no. All of our guests are very special uh, to us. And also, I I think it's fair to say that you're. Probably our least controversial guest, Jesse, you managed to just avoid any of the road bumps on the internet. So yep. that that's refreshing.
2: That's what I'm known for.
1: <laughs> so the, the other thing is that you have a book which is not new right now it's well. I guess it's, it's close to new. It's a couple of months out, The Quick Things, which you kindly shared with us. And I, I'm sure Matt dutifully read everything and has his notes for each chapter ready. <laughs> right, Matt? I, I have
0: quite a few notes, actually. You'll be surprised, Chris.
1: Well, I think we originally, I can't even remember if we invited you before you had your book or not. But with the book, it seems there's a lot of overlap with our interest because we're focusing on... Online gurus and the online dynamics as well, and a lot of what you covered in the book, which was really good, by the way. Just there, thank I'll, you. I'll say, I think your book with together with Stuart Ritchie's recent
2: book, yeah, science um, fictions is great. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's a it's a really neat encapsulation of maybe I'd even put it as a like capstone. Is that the phrase of? The replication crisis. It's a nice accounting of what went on there and where we are now in social sciences and in psychology in particular. So, yeah, there's a lot that naturally overlaps with the kind of things we talk about. Matt, I I know that you like the book as well, right?
0: Mm, Yeah, I did like the book. Congrats, Jesse. So. I guess one good place to start is just to, yeah, ask you to, can, can you sum up the thesis in your own words? So I could do it for you, but I, I think you could probably do it better. How would you describe it to someone who hasn't read it?
2: Yeah, I think it's a an examination of why psychologists proffer uh, easy-seeming solutions to complicated problems, and, and maybe just as importantly, why the media and ted talks and and other scientists disseminate these ideas despite the lack of evidence to support the grand claims uh, underpinning them
0: mm. yeah and you you talk about perhaps some of our natural tendencies towards like simple and monocausal explanations for things
2: yeah i'd say like over and over in the book it's like you know there'll be some observation about how the world works or how inequality works that Usually stems from a grain of truth. It's just sort of focusing in on this one aspect of the problem at the expense of almost everything else. I, I think that's a big part of the problem, and you know that's why people fall for TED talkers. They're good storytellers and they're simple storytellers. Mm. So there's
1: there's a question I had about that, Jesse, because like the conclusion that it's more complicated than that, and there's multiple factors. That's I mean that's almost always true, and it's a it's an evergreen statement for most topics but so i'm completely on board with that as well but don't you agree that like this might just be my corner of the internet or the academic world but ted talks for example it feels like there has been a backlash to their kind of glib monocausal accounts or overselling solutions that now ted talks are almost equally a source of parody as they are something which CEOs turn to for the next nudge.
2: Yeah, I think there's something of that, especially among the sorts of people who who follow like the replication crisis closely. But I think a lot of people still believe in that stuff. And, and in my book, the different, a lot of the chapters are sort of case studies. And I think they range from um, stuff that is pretty widely accepted as debunked to, in some cases, ideas that are still, are still percolating along strongly but shouldn't be. So I think there's a range there in terms of how far along these ideas are in their life cycle.
0: Mm. Mm. So one of the things I noticed is that, like in broad brushstrokes, a lot of those ideas or s- schools of um, work ha- sometimes have some reasonably serious academic foundations but then you have like a range of poorer quality, but I guess more accessible and appealing papers in the literature. And then that in turn can get picked up by popularizers of various kinds. And these people could range from someone like Jordan Peterson to Robin D'Angelo, I suppose, um, who then have a big influence on, on popular culture. And so one thing that struck me is that the The sort of thing you were diagnosing, like it doesn't really have a political valence. But if if you do want to look at at it like that, it's happening across the spectrum.
2: Yeah. What's interesting is like I – so I think there's an interesting conversation to be had about psychology is overwhelmingly liberal. And I think that can have some consequences for the quality of research because like I used to view – ideological diversity is sort of a punchline i've in looking into these stories of how these bad ideas percolate i've i've come to appreciate it a little bit more but i think if there's any bias that that props up these ideas it's almost um i don't love the term neoliberalism but these are pretty neoliberal ideas they they're not about restructuring society they're about optimizing individuals in cost-effective ways that don't require redistribution so i agree that my book has has most of the ideas don't have much of a political valence, but I think if there is one, it's a little bit more nuanced than you know just left or right wing ideas. Uh,
0: yeah, yeah, for sure. Actually, I'm glad you said that because I noticed the same thing uh, you pointed out in the book, which is that uh, a lot of these social psychology concepts, like giving people little nudges or building up their sense of self efficacy or positive thinking and so on, are kind of a very individualistic, atomic. And yeah, yeah I, I don't love the term either, but it, it fits very nicely with the, the neoliberal <laughs> consensus, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, and 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 I think that it's a useful example of the limitations of these political labels because I, I bet almost everyone, uh, I think the best example of this is grit. You know, this idea of a scale that can measure people's, particularly students' level of stick to and basically conscientiousness. It might actually be measuring conscientiousness Read the book for more details on that. But the point is, I bet 90% of the people who developed Grit, including Angela Duckworth, are reliable Democratic voters. They're, they're liberals in the simple liberal conservative binary. But Grit is a very, like, classic American, pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps idea. So, mm. you know, it, it's just more complicated than the idea of, like, a liberal bias in science. Something more nuanced is going on.
1: Similarly, Jesse, when you talked about the power-posing literature and yeah. Amy Cuddy's framing, of that research i mean the issue if she's claiming that you know striking a pose can subjectively make you feel a bit more confident going into an interview there's there's probably less of a concern right because that's a relatively limited claim but the claim that doing that can be demonstrated to have a massive impact on who will be selected for a job and alter your hormone levels and that these kind of interventions are much more tractable than, say, attempts to change the fundamental structures of institutions or systems. So you kind of frame it as those two approaches being in conflict. And do do you see that as being a necessity or just like a feature of the people that you focused on?
2: I'm not sure they're inherently in conflict. I think it's a matter of what you pay attention to and what you focus on. So I I situate um, power posing within this recent tradition in America of lean in feminism. So Sheryl Sandberg wrote lean in and her book and Cuddy's book both say that women should just be basically be more assertive and, and, in certain senses, more masculine. So my argument is instead of focusing on like telling women to fake it till they make it in terms of their confidence and sense of power, which is literally one of the things they say, uh, there's probably room for organizational level tweaks that will make things a little bit fair. So when Sandberg talks about being in business school at, at um, I think it was Sandberg it was in business school at Harvard, I believe. Professors there would not take notes. Class participation was very important. Professors wouldn't take notes, so this would clearly benefit the sorts of uh, blowhards like the three of us who could just stand up and say something authoritative seeming in class. To me, that's a good example. Like that probably benefits people with male socialization. Why would you not change that system so professors can take notes and and you don't have to rely on people who are who are you know it. That's the kind of thing where it's like, why are we telling women to stand up and speak more confidently when they don't feel confident rather than making it so that the systems don't reward undue confidence, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Mm. So that's sort of a related topic you get into is the literature on and ideas around self-esteem and positive thinking. So a few rungs down the intellectual ladder is the book called The Secret by Rona Byrne that you talk about. Um, so in, in that book, it uh, promotes the power of positive thinking and encourages people to visualize the things they want and then they will come true. So, I mean, for, for me, this is really interesting because it's similar to what some people are looking at with the conspirituality movement, which is like this weird uh, horseshoe in terms of kind of right wing and libertarian type thinking with the alternative health and wellness. So likewise, it seems that that kind of material that gets um, promoted by Oprah and stuff like that is like a weird dovetailing of this very capitalist kind of individualist, get the things you want, but also with this sort of warm and fluffy stuff around, believe in yourself and, and and it will come true. So what are your thoughts about that, Jesse?
2: I just think in general, a lot of social psychology has ventured, and definitely positive psychology, have they've ventured much too closely to self-help, and it's often hard to discern the two. So you have the consumers of this stuff are maybe... I have no data to support this, but I would imagine a little bit higher educated and they like the idea that they're listening to the latest social psychological insights from Harvard or uh, UPenn. But when you actually dig down into these messages, they're they're just self-help. And there's mm. there's the trappings of science, but very little um, genuine, uh, robust science underpinning them.
1: Mm. I, I think I like the way yeah, in that chapter you traced the development of the self-esteem literature linking it to the like I, the, some of the names were amazing <laughs> like phineas parkhurst quimby right the yeah cl- clock maker and mesmerist the <laughs> the, the, yeah, the new, new the I,
2: new thought movement which is an amazing move. I, I wanted to learn more about it i learned a little for the book but new thought is incredible stuff
1: yeah, and that, then next, the power of positive thinking, right? Norman Vincent Peale. It, it, there, there seems to be a, like, a I don't know, a, a triple-barreled name effect that somebody <laughs> yeah. should study. But I, I, I like that because it's, it's often overlooked how much some of the contemporary trends in psychology are linked into fads, that you can find echoes in the Victorian era or even earlier than that and it does feel including with the culture war stuff that there's something of a recency bias I'm not I'm not saying that things never change but more that there's there's definitely elements that repeat cyclically and I wonder if you find it helpful to to take that kind of perspective, looking back and seeing that <laughs> we've always had people peddling miracle psychological interventions.
2: Yeah, I mean, so I guess there's a couple different questions there. One one about sort of the culture wars, one about social psychology. I think you can make, I think some of the stuff going on with social psychology is maybe less cyclical. I think like certain specific elements of how it developed as a profession some of which were in an earlier draft of my book but i just had to cut it for for flow reasons but social psychology got more and more individualistic over the years and there was this post-war golden age when it was very interdisciplinary so you'd have anthropologists and sociologists working with social psychologists social psychologists sort of fell in love with with lab studies and with the endless amount of statistically significant findings you can generate in labs and I think it could be argued and some have argued that that's when the ship started to veer off course a little bit because it's hard to measure, you know, uh, learn about social aspects of human life with lab studies. And I do think that that culminated in certain dead ends that, that really peaked maybe in the first decade or so of the 21st century. And that coincided with TED Talks, with social media, with like a million new news outlets that like to cover science, but not in a rigorous way. So I think, like, I think it was just like a, a worst case scenario in terms of sort of the the deer of all this stuff, uh, the culture war stuff. More broadly, I agree is is, is very cyclical.
0: Mm. Yeah, look, just got to say, so uh, Jesse, you, you've got a, a pretty strong background in statistics as well, and uh, fortunately, most of my work is in the survey domain where we have very large samples. And we don't try to do experimental manipulations, but I am involved with a lot of laboratory research as well. And to be honest, my gut feeling is, is that if you design and analyze an experimental manipulation well, then you have a very, very low chance of (laughs) finding the thing that you expect. However, if you do it badly and cut corners, then you can find a supposed effect there. So, I mean, just on a just a very personal gut feeling level, I've seen what you're describing there with the weakness of laboratory studies.
2: Yeah. Well, you can also run 20 statistical tests and two or three of them are are going to hit, and then you can just say that's what you were looking for the whole time. It's like very. Uh, there's a lot of ways it can go wrong, and I. Sh- I just want to like. I'm not. I don't have like a very strong background in statistics. I just know the basics, but just knowing the basics, unfortunately, makes me more qualified than most journalists who write about this stuff.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and some so- and-, and some psychologists <laughs> just. <laughs> no I
1: you know. Like selling the benefits of interdisciplinary collaborations is is music to my ears because like Matt, Matt and me are in some sense interdisciplinary uh, collaboration. A co- collaboration <laughs> with
0: anthropologists is overrated.
1: No, no, it isn't. It's the future. And the, uh, the institute I work at at Oxford is very much focused on that kind of collaborating with historians and psychologists and so on. But I will say that something I've noticed within social psychology and cross-cultural psychology disciplines is that anthropology went through these debates in the 70s up till like the 90s the kind of first wave of the culture wars or the modern culture wars and a lot of it was focused on academic minutiae but but there were also things about objectivity and taking etic and perspectives and representing indigenous perspectives and and so on and the interesting thing for me is that like i came into anthropology at the tail end of that and leaned more towards the you can still do that stuff but you can combine it with empirical approaches so i became involved with psychology and, and that's where i'm situated now in the hinterlands but i've noticed that psychology is now very much recapitulating the concerns of 90s anthropology like i went to a psychology conference and there was a guy standing up saying i don't think he was raising the issues that the psychology discipline is overwhelmed by liberals and then he was making the point that they don't understand honor cultures and that what they need to do instead of running experimental studies is go and live with people in the deep south or wherever for a number <laughs> of years and then write qualitative accounts based on interviews. And I was just isn't going, but that's anthropology oh, yeah, <laughs> that,
2: exactly.
1: that it already exists. So yeah, it, it it just struck me that there's calls for that kind of thing, but there's also something to be said for disciplinary specialization.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I guess it, it depends what kind of specialization and like, one of the best sort of younger-ish social psychologists working is a woman named uh, Betsy Pollack at uh, Princeton. And she has more of a field research background than a lot of social psychologists. And she's done pretty amazing real world studies that I think are expensive and hard to pull off, but probably tell us much more about the world than the average lab finding.
1: Yeah. There's a good researcher who's now at LSE who did a multi-year study about ritual dynamics. I think it was in an Indian community. In in any case, It was like a five-year study where they networked out all the relationships between the people in this village and were tracing their ritual performances. And it was great. Uh, You know, it came out as an empirical paper, but included all this rich data. But the reality of it is that that person had to spend five years working in a a rural Indian village to collect that kind of rich data. Whereas in the meantime, and and sure, they actually got a position out of LSE and stuff related to that. So that's a good outcome. But- In reality, most people don't have the time or resources to do that. So they are going to run MTurk studies or
2: a lab. Yeah, no, I was going to say that in that time, you could probably publish five to 10 studies on implicit bias using university samples.
0: Yeah. So Jesse, again, I'm going to talk a little bit because I I just want to let our listeners know that the sort of stuff that you talk about in your book, uh, I think is really important. And I feel like I've seen it in my own career. Back when I was a research student, a couple of things were very popular. One of them was uh, neuro-linguistic programming, NLP. And another one that I actually did my honours thesis in was... um, Transformational leadership, as opposed to transactional leadership, now this is from organizational psychology and transform- transformational leadership is, is this wonderful thing where the managers inspire and have these genuine authentic relationships. you name it it's it's great it's it's great now it's even at that um, young age uh, you could tell that this stuff was telling executives and managers what they wanted to hear, uh, and that there were people who were making a lot of money by heading out to corporations and running these transformational leadership courses and so on and really capitalising on it. And it was hugely popular. A lot of people made a lot of money out of it. But from studying it, I realised that the foundations were extremely weak. Now, I, I don't think you talk about that in the book, but that's the kind of example I could see where there's, there's this interface between people's incentives and, and what essentially fits very nicely with the existing system – and the way it just sort of pulls research in the wrong direction.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I do think the implicit association test is a really good example of that because it creates these incredibly useful, lucrative tools for individual companies and schools to seem to be doing something science-y about racism and discrimination. Now, does it help at all? There's, there's no real evidence to suggest it does, but it certainly helps make it seem like they're doing something. And, Yeah. I I just think, especially because the average uh, company, what, they're going to do a longitudinal study, like measuring whether the the training module they they hired had any effect in the long run. Of course they're not. They're just trying to check an item off a list. So I think there's always going to be a market for half-baked psychology-informed corporate and educational modules, basically.
0: Yeah. So one thing that struck deep for me is that Many of the things that we see in our gurus, which is like taking these shortcuts for attention and impact through speculative claims and bad reasoning, yeah, it was a harsh lesson because um, your book essentially illustrates that those same motivations are operating on every academic and, and journalist too, for that matter. So what are your thoughts on that? And is there anything we can do about it?
2: Yeah, I mean it's tricky. I think a lot of the incentives point toward half-baked ideas getting disseminated. I, I do think some of the reform efforts underway in psychology are likely to improve things. I, it just it seems like there's a pretty good diagnosis of what went wrong and how to fix it. That doesn't mean. Psychology is going to be perfect 10 years from now. But I just – I do think it's getting better. Journalism I, I have less faith in just because like we are continuing to collapse entirely in like a structural sense. And I think if anything, there's going to be fewer journalists really qualified to write about this kind of research. But um, yeah, so I'm, I, I'm I'm torn on the future. I, I just – it might always be the case that that we're a sucker for novel ideas that sound right but aren't all that true or don't mean all that much. But it's just something that, as humans, we need to be on guard for. Hmm.
1: Yeah, I like your the point that it, it, one that was very refreshing that you had a chapter on the the efforts to improve things, the kind of open science movement and uh, importance of many labs and all that kind of thing. Because I think. There's always a danger with this stuff that you end up just bemoaning the the situation such as it exists. And it's not really your requirement that you have solutions, but I, I still think it's good when people can point to that there is at least signs of hope in reform movements and that kind of thing.
2: Yeah, I, I don't want people to slide into some sort of nihilism or relativism where science is just sort of another broken human institution. I, I do think the benefit of it is it is it, it contains the tools for self-correction in a way other belief systems don't. So that's why I am still uh, I still have faith in science, for lack of a better, uh, more intelligent way to put it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm heartened too because what I've seen is not that um, – Uh, research psychologists have kind of closed ranks and denied that there's a problem and so on, but have really embraced that. And, um, yeah, doing some serious (laughs) self-reflection and hopefully reform.
1: I I will say Matt that I've noticed as well, and I'm sure Jesse, you've seen this, that any, any reform movement and the open science movement is, is not immune from this as it like goes on, it tends to fracture and form into camps like in in the same way the atheist movement, the new atheist movement did and and pretty much all online groups or movements that I've seen maybe even not just online but the the open science movement feels to me like it it's one, some concessions with now pre registrations are uh, recognized as important, and there's registered reports and whatnot. But they have also broke into these fighting camps that predictably have ended up arguing about how important it is to include a social justice component in the open science movement. And I know uh, people within the movement, for example, Jesse, have quite different reactions to you, right? But they don't disagree with you on any of the points about like methodological reforms, but they do on social justice issues.
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess I've had trouble historically, and this maybe is just Twitter, um, understanding... I mean, there's there's one sort of open science adjacent figure in particular who's very critical of me, although he's also skeptical of open science in general, because I think he thinks it's sort of like a... A white dude bro endeavor um i i guess i just i would need more specifics about what their critiques are i found again this could just be the result of twitter where too much of these conversations take place but a lot of the time when someone is is mad at me and my work and i'll ask them like what it is i've said they're mad about they um they don't always display intimate familiarity with. I'm trying to be diplomatic here. I've had so many interactions with people where I've just asked, like, point me to what it is I've written that you really disagree with, and um, yeah. So, so some of the open science fracturing stuff, I I've been following it a little bit. I'm just not. I don't know. I feel like with so many of these like internecine culture war fights, there's like a kernel of truth. And that of course, psychology is like, like so many other areas of academia benefits privileged people. And that probably leads to, to disproportionately white people. Um, But that's just like a, a pretty deep structural thing to have to face. And to me, I, I'm not sure you can sort of straightforwardly insert concern about that into every aspect of like pre-registration or replication. I mean, what's pre-registration is, is I think, good. I think we should promote it. I'm not sure like every step of the way when you're promoting pre-registration, you can tie directly into like, you know, Black Lives Matter or whatever. Sometimes, I, I don't know. I don't always understand the critiques, I guess, is what I'm saying, either of me or of like what it is the open science movement should do differently. Mm.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think it comes down to whether you regard like social justice as a fundamental, that that, that should be a fundamental focus on par with methodological reform, uh, or whether you regard those as orthogonal issues, right? That it could be that you're completely on board with uh, social justice positions or whatever form that you... People regard them as taking, but that you don't think that that directly ties into, like you say, why you would need to pre-register studies or that kind of thing. And I, I think I probably fall into close to the high decoupling space within yeah. like academic stuff. I think Matt and me have the now non-fashionable view that activism and objectivity. In research endeavors are kind of pulling in different directions. It doesn't even feel like that should be controversial to say, but yet it it is. Uh,
2: yeah, I I mean I guess I'm with you. I, I think the reason to care about pre-registration is that half of published studies don't don't replicate. And I think you can have that conversation. It's not always gonna tie directly into other ongoing social justice conversations, as important as those are.
0: I think it's probably worth mentioning that someone who is very concerned with social justice should like one of the central theses of your book, which relates to that neoliberal stuff we are talking about before. A lot of the poor quality research that assumes that everything can be boiled down to the individual and that can be manipulated in an experiment, little nudges and so on. Whereas, as you point out with your emphasis on multi-causal explanations for things it's not just at the individual level it's got to do with social structures and and power and so on so
2: yeah i mean it's a pretty standard like uh pinko big government type of argument for for just i mean obviously it's more complicated you can't always just throw money at a problem and and solve it but it certainly helps and and obviously the u.s has a in many ways a uniquely dysfunctional welfare state uh so yeah that's sort of underpinning the the whole book
1: mm okay. Jesse, we'd be remiss if we didn't at least spend some time on the, the culture wars that, for better or worse, that you swim in and the various <laughs> online controversies that you would attract. But before any of the ones that probably people would expect us to get through. I I have a controversy that I want to take up with you personally. <laughs> Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, this 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 was all uh, like a force just to get to my my issues. So you know this thing, the lab leak hypothesis, right? Have you heard of that? <laughs>
2: yes, I've heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, so it's this
1: little topic that keeps popping up recently. But I listened to an episode with you recently. It might have been. Ben Burgess, or I, I I think you discussed it with Katie as well on Block and Reported. Um, and the point that you and many people online are making this currently, like, you know, Tybee and Green World and so on, is that there was this group think within the liberal media sources, right, which presented any discussion of the possibility of a lab like, as a racist conspiracy theory. And that this was tied into a at dist- this like for trump and the fact that his agenda immediately went to that and and in so doing that they papered over an area of legitimate scientific debate and controversy is that a fair framing or would you add anything yeah
2: yeah i think that's a fair framing i i have until i do hundreds of hours more research i will remain agnostic on how Realistic possibility we should view the lab leak uh, theory as I just sort of defer to the experts, to some experts who seem to think like we should at least not discount it. So that was my only claim that it shouldn't have been uh, so aggressively discounted and treated as quote unquote debunked like more than a year ago.
1: Okay, yeah. Um And by the way, I'm not trying to trap you. <laughs> You're right in, in dorking, I'm just. So.
2: I, I was actually. Katie and I were actually the ones who who released the virus. I hope you'll delete this, but we're just <laughs> yeah, to cover this. This is this is where I'm
1: getting to, Jesse. The percentage. I want to know the percentage that it's you, that it's <laughs> the, the source. But so, I like. I I don't want to argue that there's no coverage on Vox or Salon or whatever, which essentially presents any raising of questions about the lab leak as being tied to trump talking points but a bit i'd like to push back on and i i think it relates to some of the other culture war stuff is that like when i look back at that coverage and people were sharing all these headlines basically saying look this was verboten to discuss this and you go in and do what you often say like read the articles and what they say not the headlines you get you get these accounts and then you'll get like a paragraph where they talk about how the majority of virologists think that it's from a natural cause. And then there's there's usually a sourced who said it and something like, but no virologists were willing to completely discount the possibility of a lab leak. And, and that's what I see also in most of the academic published material. They talked about that for various reasons that we don't need to get into, their analysis suggests that a natural origin is more likely, but they don't rule out the possibility. But it it strikes me that like the the narrative on this, uh, especially amongst you know kind of alternative media or substacky people, <laughs> is that you were you were not allowed to say that, and that it was completely forbidden for people to acknowledge any possibility. And I see it more that. People were just, I'm not saying all journalists did this right, like I've added enough caveats in, but that rather it was them saying this is the consensus, but people don't rule it out. And I, I just don't get the impression that it was forbidden to say, to add the caveat, like I, I just see the caveat in lots of the writing and stuff. So I don't know I like it's not much of a question.
2: Yeah, no I I, I get what you're saying. I, so I did think there were a few articles I'm thinking of one in NPR and one in Slate that either straightforwardly referred to the theory as debunked either, usually what would happen is it would either be in the headline or in the journalist's own words. But then you would see that none of the sources they were quoting were saying exactly that. I think this is a point um, mm. John Shate made. It seemed like this almost like reflective knee-jerk thing, like, no, 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 we're, we view it as debunked. It, it's bad. And then you know, Slate did a long article basically saying that it, it tied into this uh, history of like anti Chinese racism, which is sort of bizarre when you realize that the the orthodox theory has it coming out of a wet market, which to me ties way more into anti Chinese racist tropes than. Um so I get what you're saying. I don't. I, I also think in 2021 the question of like what's forbidden to say is complicated because you can say whatever you want. There's just a lot of things that maybe mainstream outlets won't say, or you could get in trouble for saying. So. That's some of the complication of talking about like this quote unquote censorship or cancellation. So my critique was really just of like the mainstream outlets that to me should be shooting most down the middle, trying to, to the extent possible, you know, while we acknowledge that objectivity isn't a real thing, trying to get to the bottom of this in in a somewhat objective way. And I, I think some of them failed in doing that.
0: I actually think that specific issue relates in an interesting way to the takeaway from your book because it's obviously to essentially encourage a kind of scepticism towards some widely accepted claims that are coming out of academia or institutions. So I guess a good question is how do we separate the healthy scepticism from a kind of conspiratorial, just um, anti-institutional worldview.
2: I mean, it's tricky, right? There's just like, there's so much to be skeptical of when it comes to authority. And I've gotten, I think, significantly more skeptical of a lot of like mainstream institutions. I I think there's like a real crisis of institutional authority right now. And I don't think it's 100% like... Trumped up, no pun intended, by by sort of right wing demagogues and populists. I I think a lot of institutions aren't performing their functions well, and part of the backlash is a response to that. And it worries the hell out of me. And I don't, I'm not offering a constructive response because I don't know what to do about it. I'm just, I'm, I'm a little bit worried about this, to be honest.
1: Mm. uh, Jesse, that that is related to a question I want to ask you because something that we see in the guru types that we look at is this really, really strong anti-institutional, anti-establishmentarianism, right? It's almost definitional of like what it means to be an online guru, yeah. right?
2: So that's one of the issue things on your gur- gurometer, right? How you raise <laughs> it. Correct.
1: The, you, you've studied the science. Exactly. <laughs> I see.
2: It's um, that you're, and the gurometer is a well-validated scale, as we know.
1: Indeed. It it's it's science, Jesse. It's science. It's science and art combined. It's, it's a perfect <laughs> synergy. But, um, but so – my issue, and you know, I listened to your interview with Very Bad Wizards, that like small other podcast by you know lesser known academics. But, Never heard. Um, of <laughs> they they made they uh, made the point that with and reported, which is really enjoyable, and I as much as anyone, I think, in, enjoy more in seeing side of the culture war. But there is this dynamic that you're well aware of, where that. From one side of the pool, like the Quillette and Critical Obsessed side, not universally, but generally, you get a positive reception, right? And from the mm, progressive wing of the liberal side, you you it's fair to say that you get like a fair share of criticism. Light light criticism, you know. And that just normal social dynamics will mean that you must get pulled right towards the side that treat you nicer in an interpersonal way. You know, I think this is something that Sam Harris uh, has an issue with as well. And I wonder, do you think that could partly relate to why your skepticism with institutionalism is growing? And does it concern you if so?
2: Yeah. Well, I think it's a fair question. I guess I would say, first of all, like, um, James Lindsay and his fans seem to really dislike me at this point because I, I thought his analysis of the election was ridiculous. Uh, Dave Rubin and his fans very much don't like me. So when it comes to some of the biggest so-called heterodox, like anti-CRT types, they really they don't like me. Uh, and, I, and I still think most of my fans are progressives. Like there's a huge market for just sort of, quote-unquote, reasonable Obama liberals. And I, I do think that's my average listener. That's the average person I hear from. So I think with people like Lindsay, I think they've gone down like really dark rabbit holes where they just, they think they're at war with like cultural Marxists or whatever. And I just think it's a very myopic worldview. I have critiques of like what I do view as a crisis of authority in some liberal institutions, but I try to make them in a way that, I don't know, put puts them in the proper context. I'm not going to blow up some random college kid who does a dumb college kid thing. There's a definite risk of sort of audience capture or or feeling like, you know, these people are being nicer to me. I do think that's human nature. For whatever reason, in my case, it hasn't really raised any problems. I think just because I've never – my real-life social network is very not offline and is – I think a hundred percent Democrat voting, so it's just—I mean, I've started hanging out with—I've like the biggest social impact of this is I hang out with more libertarians because they're good drinking buddies, and I have um, God bless you. (laughs) (laughs) I have some points of agreement with them on some of the culture war stuff, but uh, yeah, I—I think it's a fair question, and and when I look at people like James Lindsay and Dave Rubin, I—they've completely to me gone over to a. Pretty reactionary place. But yeah, I just, I try to be cognizant of that. And I try to be cognizant of the fact that, frankly, you do make more money writing about culture war stuff and beating that drum over and over and over again. If I wanted to maximize my revenue and audience, that would be all I ever wrote about. And I'm not going to do that. And my book is not about culture war stuff. So,
1: yeah. yeah and I, I got to say, Jesse, I really appreciated your. Your presence in that to be moderated in, in inverted commas by Brett Weinstein and and with James Lindsay, and I take the point entirely that James Lindsay is not your biggest fan. That's that's quite evident. But I I'm more thinking that the like say your recent appearance was Sam Harris, and I don't want to litigate all the things you know individual things that have been said or whatnot. But it's more like okay. So Sam has famously stated that what is it white supremacy is the fringe of the fringe. And, and in some sense, he's making a completely valid claim. And one, I think you have covered that there, there is a tendency to catastrophize about the extent to which extreme views are common. But on the other hand, the, the president of the United States prior to this one came to political prominence on the back of the birther movement. And then you had figures like Stephen Miller in the White House dictating immigration policy for four years. So it, it feels to me that there's a danger of the, you know, yes, snarling Nazis with swastikas on their head are a fringe, but the, the far-right political movement, such as it exists, and I would say that Trump falls pretty close to what I'd consider far right. And that's that's definitely not fringe now. I
2: just don't, I, I, I loathe Trump, but um, I've gotten people people disagree with me, I, I think George W. Bush did way more damage as president. Uh, and he would have done more damage if he had just been a one-term president too. I think in terms of Trump's actual agenda, there was something uniquely horrible about his immigration policy. The fact that Steve Bannon was anywhere close to power was horrifying, mm. same with Stephen Miller. You know George W Bush had John Ashcroft and and Ashcroft is a guy he g- he gave a glowing interview to basically a segregationist magazine there is this the there's a lot of white grievance in the Republican party there's a lot of very reactionary element um I just I on most policy issues Donald Trump is just a Republican president he really is and and that that extends even to like not really fighting the gay marriage fight anymore. Not being that anti-LGBT. The one exception is he, the the horrible, horrible attempt to tra- uh, ban trans people from the military, which I think he's just trying to throw red meat to the evangelical base. I, I just. I think the so many of the problems in the U.S. do come down to like Republican economic policy, and and when we pretend our fight is against like the Charlottesville crowd, obviously those people worry me. I'm Jewish and like a liberal, want to <laughs> be You replace guy. us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I I will replace them. Um, <laughs> so I, I just I don't know. I, I I hate to say it. I know this is an unpopular view. I just think it's been a little bit of a distraction, and I also think. It 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 benefits certain people to pretend Trump was like a few notches to the left of Hitler or or, you know, even like um I don't know. I just I really just think on most you you guys could tell me if I'm wrong, I just think on most policy issues he's a Republican president. Uh his rhetoric was what was different. And there's something there are uniquely threatening aspects of having a president who slings rhetoric like that and who frankly comes across as emotionally unstable and labile, but um, most of that stuff was held in check. He was a one-term president, and I think a lot of I, I'm just hopeful that some of the damage is reversible. Uh I I find his approach to immigration and Stephen Miller's just absolutely grotesque. I don't think it's that far off from unfortunately what a lot of conservatives believe in the US and and definitely what a lot of people believe in, in Europe. This is just like I don't know, anti immigrant sentiment is just something that bubbles up everywhere and we need to we need to be on the lookout for it. So I, I don't like the idea of like pretending it's sort of some wave of white nationalism responsible for it. I think it'll always be with us, unfortunately.
0: Mm. Yeah, I think I think some of these questions go to the relative weight of concern one should have in various directions. So you know, in in a way, the way you describe Trump, which I don't necessarily disagree with as not being exceptional, is actually more disturbing yeah. <laughs> <laughs> isn't it <laughs>
2: well but there is this whole interesting thing where the republican party thought that it could be this sort of more respectable like jeb bush marco rubio nice guys wearing suits there's always been a divide between like what the base wants and the base is frankly a lot more racist that's not the only thing animating them and some of them have legitimate economic concerns but trump was he, he's that is who the base wants, people like Trump, and that's how Trump has totally captured the party and i I think that's a big problem, but I don't think the idea of a Republican base that is very far to the right on these issues is is new, or we should pretend it's new uh,
1: yeah, I guess I think part of the objection that I could see people raise is like, okay, so people could legitimately say you know academia is strongly uh like the the vast majority is liberal leaning. And people make this argument about media as well, right, and entertainment and so on. But the people who make those arguments tend not to acknowledge at the same time the really, really severe issues with the gerrymandering of votes, right, like how disproportionate it is for a liberal or democratic president to be elected with the the way that the system is set up. Or the composition of the Supreme Court and what that means for the U.S. in the next few decades of policy. So like I I often find myself annoyed when people talk about the media as if the right wing media is not a really significant force and doesn't really have that much influence. And that, that, just, that strikes me as a, almost as big a problem as the people on the left in media who oversell the problem because they're there is an issue there,
2: right? Well, I mean, right-wing media is is accessible and has been for a long time. And I, I think probably took a real turn for the worse in like 2015 or so. And I, I wrote about some of that fake news stuff. My my worry, and this could send us down a whole other road, is that I do think in certain ways, liberal media is 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 sort of headed down the same path in like a very aggressive hyper partisan bent to everything and and that worries me because I, I just think we need to be able to trust mainstream journalistic institutions to to tell the truth and to be as dispassionate as possible. and I, I do think there's been a, a turning away from that that worries me. This is based on there's like you know, two or three issues where I consider myself pretty informed. and when I see how these issues are covered in mainstream outlets, it it worries me a great deal. But I think overall, hmm. The Right has a much bigger problem with fake news and just like gonzo outlets spreading bile. Um, part of the reason I focus on what I focus on is because I, I just think I'm in a better position to critique the left of center,
0: yeah. Like, I have to say, I agree with you there, Jesse. Yeah, the fact that Fox News, <laughs> oh, I is- dare <there> you, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> the, fact- <laughs> the, the fact that Fox News is a cesspool doesn't mean that one shouldn't want the New York Times to be better. Mm. And sp- talking about the the importance of objectivity, I even experienced this in in my own very specialized field, which is looking at the public health of um, addiction and addictive products. And you'll see people at conferences who, who point the finger at people like me who say, we should remain scientists, right? Yes, um, the implications of our research does have social impacts, but we're not activists. We should be all about presenting an accurate model of reality, communicating that information to policymakers. And yes, we have our own personal feelings about what should be done and so on, but we try to keep those separate. And you will find people at at uh, academic conferences, he say, "No, we we should be activists. All of our research should be geared towards pushing um, a good line to change society for the better." And um, I just don't agree.
2: Well, this is uh, it's the exact same thing going on in journalism, where especially among younger journalists, I I don't think most of them could really answer the question of what differentiates them from activists, other than they you know they interview people, which maybe activists don't usually do. But that worries the hell out of me because I I just think the only value we as journalists can add is to be that trustworthy, dispassionate voice. And again, people will try to derail the conversation by saying, oh, you so you think it's possible to be truly objective, which of course it's not. We all have biases, but you can acknowledge them and you can try to take every incident on its own terms and try to explain them to people in an honest way. But uh yeah, I mean, I'm just, I'm just agreeing with you after you agreed with me. I'm I'm just worried about the trajectory of things.
1: Well, this is this is what happens when you speak to reasonable people. Jesse, they just, like, <laughs> just agreement after agreement.
0: Uh, uh, Great. Now, now I'm going to be cancelled too with with you, Jesse. Uh, what what what's it like? Is, is it, it's not that bad. I hope.
2: I uh, no, my experiences with cancellation have been very positive, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I do think
1: that you know it's it's possibly harmful for the podcast, as you mentioned. But I was really impressed with you, Jesse. As I'm, I'm sure you you care about my judgment of it. But there, whenever Chase Strangio, or I don't know how to pronounce his surname, but when he came out recently. And and kind of, uh, I think for you and a bunch of other people on the the bus, although he, he later claimed, right, the sentence meant something slightly different.
2: Missing period. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love that it was,
1: it was quite a good inventive defense, at least. But yeah, so in that case, you know, you said uh, there's no point in responding because if I tweet something like the people who like me are going to share it and then the people that don't like me are going to attack it and he'll respond. And the, I, I don't know if it came off the back of the, you know, personal tragic that you've endured recently, but it seemed like that dynamic where you said, look, if you want to talk about it, you know, you can come on the podcast. We'll have a real dialogue, but I, I'm not going to engage with this. And you, you laid out why he was wrong in what he said, but that, that struck me as like infinitely more productive. Right. But Less of a contribution to the culture wars. And maybe Jesse, I'm I'm interested in your thoughts if like that's something you're hoping to keep up.
2: Oh no, no, I mean I, I look I I I I did respond on Twitter, which maybe isn't productive, but I just sort of did a statement being like the context was Chase in an interview, Chase Strangio, um sort of the ACLU's main voice on trans issues, in an interview with GQ, claimed that me and other people had said that we find trans people disgusting and that that was motivating the stuff that I guess Chase disagrees with. I don't know exactly what Chase disagrees with that I've written because he hasn't said, but so I just said, I've never in public or private said anything remotely like that. And Chase responded by claiming that this was a punctuation error. And due to a missing period, he meant to accuse unnamed people of calling trans people disgusting. Um, Chase can come on the podcast anytime. I'm just sort of tired of the endless lobbing of bullshit back and forth on Twitter. And it's, uh, it doesn't get us anywhere. And there is an element of just like, it's like a circus for everyone to watch and everyone to, people got super excited that I was going to sue Chase. Like I'm going to sue the ACLU. Like that's what I'm going to spend my summer on. I, I don't,
1: I don't think that would go well, I guess, as well, you know. It's,
2: no, it's not, it's not going to happen. Um, I just, I just, I just do think I have a right to defend myself, and I also think like there are plenty of good faith criticisms people can level of my work if they want to, but that in my experience on Twitter or just in the media landscape now, it has mostly not been that. It has mostly been things like, "Oh, you think trans people are disgusting? You think trans people want to die?" and that's a really fucking crazy thing to accuse someone of without evidence. Yeah, I,
1: I do have a follow up related to that uh, on the trans issue specifically. So like this. Sure. This isn't an area that I think me or Matt are in any way <laughs> have any expertise in, and it's definitely not an area that's fun to weed into. But having said that, like so, from what I see, Jesse, there's two me I mean, there's lots of things, right? There's lots of things that people accuse you of, and uh, and a lot of it seems un unwarranted that you're you're sliding into their DMs and uh, and that kind of thing, but the the two criticisms that you could argue have more legitimacy to them are one that by focusing on the transitioners, that you're potentially presenting it as, you know, if people wrote an article like back when gay people were fighting for equal rights, if they focused on the fact that some people have a gay fears and they go out of it and they wrote a big profile on it, it would be true. But it would also potentially be giving fuel to the thing that you know, homosexuality is just a fear and most people go out of it. And the second yeah. one is that the Kenneth Zucker, right? This is something that seems to be a perennial point that a lot of people who take different positions from you regarded that he is doing a version of conversion therapy and that you're laundering his reputation by saying that's not fair. And so uh, those two points, do you think there's any legitimacy to them? And if you could do everything over again, is there anything that you would change or like you stand by everything as it uh, has shaken out?
2: Yeah. So the Zucker story, um, Kenneth Zucker was fired by his his gender clinic was shut down as a result of allegations against him of, misconduct and of basically, uh, doing conversion therapy and in Jesus, when was this now? 2015, 2016, 1940. I don't know. At some point in the, in the last seven years, I wrote, I wrote an investigative piece and I proved that the allegations against him were highly flawed. And when I say proved I can use that word because there was subsequently a settlement where his hospital acknowledged we published false information about you. I got in touch with the one like specific accuser who claimed that Ken Zucker had called him a, this is a trans man. He claimed that Kenneth Zucker had called him a hairy little vermin after he had taken his shirt off, which is like a very, you know, it's just a horrible thing yeah. for a clinician to say to a patient. Um, I, I talked to that person and put together their story and showed that they had not been a patient of Kenneth Zucker's. They had confused Kenneth Zucker with an entirely different clinician so I reported that I reported on other weaknesses of the investigative procedure. I got in touch with a woman who was quoted at nPR as believing her child had basically been through conversion therapy. I showed why that was i think an oversimplification so I stand by the reporting of uh, i stand by the claim that He was fired unfairly. And I actually don't see how anyone could argue with that unless you'd have to come up with a reason that the hospital paid him a settlement and admitted to having launched false accusations against him. You'd have to say they were lying about – I don't know how you would even construct that. What I probably could have done if I was under less time pressure and had like a more zoomed out perspective – I could have had another 2,000 words on maybe like the history of conversion therapy and why this stokes such uh, potent fears within the trans community. Because obviously, for both gay and trans people, there's a long history of conversion therapy and it's horrible. And it's a real advance in human decency that it, it is going extinct. Um, I think it could be the case that in the long run, we view Zucker's approach as too conservative, as too gatekeepy but because when kids showed up at his clinic and they'd already been socially transitioned, he did not try to like push them back. That's what he said. And that I didn't find any evidence to suggest otherwise. I just thought that these particular accusations against him were unwarranted. And, and I did find some vindication in the, in the legal settlement. I mean, the, the hospital paid him hundreds of thousands of dollars as a result of, of these false accusations. So um, I think, I just think my reporting was, was right. Now, the question of how much to focus on detransition, I think the, the comparison with sort of ex-gay stuff doesn't work because um, it, it, it's very low stakes. Like, who cares if someone's gay for a while? Who cares? It, it doesn't matter. W- what we're talking about here is like a pretty intense fight over what the diagnostic procedure should be before young people go on puberty blockers and hormones. And this is an area where you have at the same time, like a, a near exponential increase in the number of kids showing up at these clinics, uh, with, with gender dysphoria, mostly natal, female, assigned female at birth, whatever you want to call it. That's at the same time that like every national government or healthcare system that looks into the evidence behind puberty blockers and hormones is finding that there basically is none, that the strength of the evidence is like it, there's basically almost no evidence for the efficacy of these treatments which is horrible now how do you thread the needle how do you how do you make that argument while also arguing as i have that these conservative laws seeking to ban these treatments outright are a terrible idea it's just it's difficult but my justification for writing about it in the way i do is like the us is very early on in figuring out what our own protocols are going to be we're we're far behind the UK. We're far behind the Netherlands, which is one of the pioneers in this stuff. And we have like a, a crappy patchwork healthcare system. So I I think the question of like when kids should go on puberty blockers and hormones is, is interesting and important. And I've quoted a lot of highly respected clinicians, including the head of the U S professional association for transgender health, who is herself a trans woman who thinks that there's just a lot of shitty clinicians out there doing, doing bad work. So, uh, I think that is like one of the stronger arguments against what I've done. Like, why do you care about detransitioners? I just think in context, it's a reasonable thing to worry about.
1: Yeah. I, I, I mean, I think that and the point that you make, which I I find a lot of validity to, is that whatever your position that you end up taking on these topics, there, there is – genuine room for discussion and and the need for like evidence or discussion of evidence and so on that that doesn't immediately fall into the most hyper online culture war partisanship like it's inevitable but it's also a shame that that's where it's ended up and they (laughs) the only thing i would kick issue of what you said, Jesse, is when you said, you know, if somebody goes through a gay phase, who cares? I, I think quite a few people historically have, have cared. <laughs>
2: oh, I'm sorry. I, yes, I know. I did not mean that in such a, a glib way. What I mean is it's a silly thing to focus on because it's, I don't think you should care. People have cared, but they've cared wrongly. I think if a kid goes on hormones because they were misdiagnosed, I care about that much more than I care about whether someone is like a lesbian until graduation or whatever. That was yeah, all I was saying. yeah.
1: I, I I imagined that, but that just I I was just my <laughs> you know Irish Catholic upbringing <laughs> was sort of yes. flashing more <laughs> sides in my head. So like, as I say, I this this isn't an area I know well. Like I've just followed the culture war discourse on it, and it it just seems extremely toxic, and everything is dialed up to eleven. And it, like I, so part of it, Jesse, this is just my perspective, is that you you have a personality, and even you know, with your book and the various other topics, completely unrelated to trans stuff that you talk about. You you have a pedantic personality, right? Like uh, fair fair to say.
2: Yeah. Um, I think I think it's imp- well. I think it's important to be a no. I don't. I'd like to think I'm not pedantic because like the dictionary definition is you focus on stuff that doesn't matter. But I definitely have that like well actually define your terms fallacy blah 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 annoying Jew but, personality, and I think that's. It, it, yeah, I think it To, works for
1: to me. mention the dictionary definition of pedantism.
2: <laughs> it's, it's pedantry. Yeah. Well, no, so, okay. In my, in my defense, I almost wrote a recent substack in defense of pedantry. And then I looked up the definition. And I realized I didn't know exactly what it was. And I don't want to self identify to come out yes, of pedantry. That's okay. That's all
1: right. I, I just appreciated that irony. But the, uh, like, your personality type, whether it's pedantry or detail focused, or however to frame it, I think it's fair to say that like you care about specific details, and and that yeah. this inevitably means that you kind of rub up wrong. Like, I mean you have complained to various editors, right, about articles that activists have written. And if I did that, I know that the activists, and okay, I know that they're often related to you, so there's a relevance there. But I mean, you must know that that's going to be like a red flag to a bull, right? And I I just wonder if, like, for you, the, the personal cost, that comes about this like the fact that you are fairly frequently I don't know, not in the past week or so but like you know trending on Twitter and and I know the issues with the the trending bar and how little it takes to get there but is it worth it you know to stay on this topic or do you ever consider just like dropping it completely
2: um no i i think if anything the more unhinged stuff makes me want to stick with it more because I have that kind of personality. And I also think the feedback I get off of Twitter is overwhelmingly positive. And there are high-ranking journalists and editors who will not say a word about this publicly, but who have told me they value my work. And uh, it's also worked out career-wise. So there's obviously a subset of people who, in my view, wrongly view me as like some kind of reactionary. I just think if you actually read my stuff um, that's sort of a ridiculous claim. Yeah. I'd be lying. I'd be lying if I said that I didn't sometimes wish I hadn't gone down that rabbit hole, but I don't think in the long, hopefully long arc of my career, uh, if I don't choke on a slice of pizza tonight, (laughs) I I don't think it's going to be a huge part of what I've written. Again, like I wrote a whole book about other stuff and I've, I've got some other stuff in the works, although also an article (laughs) like this. So I think I'm okay with how things are doing. And I, I view, the most unhinged people trying to make my life uh, miserable on Twitter as irrelevant. And I try not to worry about them. I do get sucked back in, but they, I'm always open for a conversation with, with most of them uh, if they want to get into the pedantic details of why they disagree with
0: me. Yeah.
1: I'll, 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 like, I'm, I'm sorry, Jesse, if it feels like a cross examination, I would happily go on record to say that the fact that you are presented as a, a nefarious villain on par with someone like Stephen Miller or that kind of thing online, <laughs> no. always just, it strikes me yep. as bizarre, because in many respects, as you've highlighted, you know, you have for maybe 90 or 95% of liberal stances, you're in line with progressives.
2: I'm in line with progressives on this too. Huh. They just won't say so on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure. I mean, what percent, like in an anonymous survey, what percentage of progressives do you think would respond negatively to before a 12 year old goes on puberty blockers and then cross sex hormones they should be thoroughly assessed for for mental health comorbidities yeah it's just it's I, like it's just insane to imagine that that's a controversial stance and that is to the extent i've expressed my own opinion in my work rather than just um debunk and and highlight experts i agree with that that's the most controversial thing i've written so that's why i find the whole thing a little bit cartoonish especially years after the my Mm. my biggest piece well it
0: wouldn't be the first time that twitter and the online infosphere has been cartoonish that's for sure uh we're getting close to time so are you guys okay to move towards wrapping it up any other any other <laughs> of jesse's personality issues or I think, things you want
1: to- <laughs> like, no i the only other thing jesse i would say that, that you know katie your co-host i came across her originally and uh, she did an interview with brett weinstein i think for his podcast and uh it, that wasn't the best introduction to katie partly because of i think The two of them were in a, you know, heterodox feedback cycle. But I want to say that on the podcast, I really like blocked and reported. And in some sense, I think the dynamic that you two have and the fact that, you know, to her, you're, I think you're like semi-moderating force for her, like more heterodox takes. And maybe she pushes you a bit when you're leaning towards being more sympathetic to liberals. And like, yeah, it's a really nice dynamic. So just to say that, that po- your podcast made me revise my harsh assessment of Katie. I'm sure she cares. But, uh, yeah, so <laughs>
2: good job. I do have to, I have to edit out a lot of uh, phrenology and Holocaust denial, but that's just a, yeah, that. Well, that's the same answer. on our
1: podcast. Ma- Matt's like level of anti-gypsy bias is astonishing. It's apparently hours <laughs> <Yeah>. and hours anecdotes. <laughs> I was going to say, just on, on the cutting kind room of floor, but uh, yeah. so that that was all, my, That's the only other thing I want mm. to say, and it's it's more of a comment than a question.
0: Yeah. So so Jesse, at the end of your book, you mentioned a paper that was written by a group of psychologists, and it was uh, titled "Is Social and Behavioral Science Evidence Ready for Application and Dissemination?" So in that, they they argued that our field shouldn't be arguing for policy people and the public to be paying more attention to us at the moment but rather just focus on the hard work of of evidence-based science and earning that credibility and legitimacy and uh, I I liked that paper and I I liked your take on it as well because I think a lot of that advice could uh, be well taken by many of our gurus as well so Just before we wrap up, is there any uh, final thoughts or comments you'd like to get off your chest?
2: No, (laughs) I'm just going to burn every remaining bridge. Uh, No, I appreciate what you guys do and I appreciate you having me on. Have you, I have not listened to every episode. Have you ever, I think an interesting thing for you guys to look into and correct me if you have is capital W whiteness as like sort of an explanatory or like mystical force in the world. I just think the evolution of that concept in liberal discourse has been really interesting. And you want to talk about like gurus and, and self-help, just this idea of, of whiteness as a force that, that transcends boundaries and you have to search yourself to, to undo your whiteness. I find that stuff fascinating. I would definitely listen to a podcast uh, of you guys talking about it.
0: Yeah. No. Look, that's that's a comparison I've made before, which is that if we're focusing on conspiracies being very abstract and nebulous and difficult to observe directly, forces working surreptitiously behind the scenes and and having this ubiquitous effect, then. I agree. Some versions, especially in the, the popular interpretations of whiteness, could be said to fit some of those properties. Look, our podcast does focus on we <laughs> we do ad hominem, so we focus on people and individuals, right? <laughs> and concepts, yeah. uh, but, I, but but I think it. Uh, I think uh, Robert D'Angelo uh, and some other people. Yeah, can fit with that, I think yeah, the, the,
1: the um, closest we've covered is kendi right? And he. His framework, the anti-racist framework, and 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 actually more policy focused. So, the yeah,
2: he's an interesting he's an interesting guy. But I think you guys, I I just think D'Angelo is much more a guru. Uh, Yeah, you know, uh, I would I I hope you guys cover her at some point. I'm 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 very skeptical of her, but I I remain fascinated by her.
1: I think part of the issue for us is like we we I we actually discussed about covering D'Angelo, but you know the way that. You and Kitty and and various other people have covered her content. It, it feels like an easy punching bag, right? Like, yeah,
2: that might be true. There's
1: there's very there's a very small contingent now, even on the like far left, who are willing to say that D'Angelo is good. So yeah, that's true. It, uh, Maybe
2: it's already been done.
1: Yeah, but yeah. It, but it's still you know it, it, we're not above looking at you know. Scott Adams, <laughs> so
0: so, so. We're, we're, we're not above taking an easy punt. That's it, for sure.
2: You know, you know who you guys should talk about is that Hitler guy.
0: <laughs> yeah, 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 he's terrible. His
2: ideas were awful. I mean, are you kidding me?
1: <laughs> it was mainly Web 2.0 that enabled him to rise to power, though. That's the the real exactly. dynamic. Uh, it was yeah. but uh, yeah, <laughs> there's there's definitely we we've talked about taking a little jaunt into the left again. And I also want to go into the the heterodox substack world of like, you know, Tybee and Greenwald or or even the the tankies and Jimmy Dore and stuff. But that's a little bit easy because it, it is the case that, you know, Matt and me are in the that that area that you discussed jesse you know the obama liberals the 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 silent moderate majority that does exist (laughs) and (laughs) the problem with that group is that there aren't that many you know guru types that because like they tend to be offering very milk toast moderate Policies like maybe Nate Silver is <laughs> the, the closest, right? You get. I like. I'm sure people will correct me about this, but uh, yeah, it, it feels like it's easy for us to punch people that we don't agree with fundamentally. Uh, so we we probably should make an effort to target people that are on our side, so to speak.
2: Yeah, it can be good to do once in a while. But um, either way, like I said, I appreciate what you guys do, and thank you for uh, for having me on.
0: Yeah, thanks so much. It's been, uh, yeah, great to hear about the book. And uh, yeah, great to talk to you, Jesse.
2: Yeah. Oh, and
1: Matt, shouldn't we normally say, Jesse, like, I, I don't people usually say in interviews, like, what are you doing next? <laughs> what is, oh, I, I, yes, I, sorry, I knew you were going to write a, an article on pedantism. <laughs> but,
2: exactly. but besides that... Oh, do you want to ask me that? That was
1: my incredible journalistic uh, question of I, what's next for you jesse
2: <laughs> yeah i have um i have some stuff in the works i haven't quite figured it out i mean the the podcast and the newsletter keep me busy um if you want to check out the podcast blocked report it sorry that's the newsletter blocked reporters podcast uh yeah i'm hoping to do like more long-form stuff hopefully i uh, not culture war stuff but uh we will see
0: all right well yeah, yeah well con- congratulations on the book and yeah congratulations on an extremely popular podcast uh blocked and reported yeah good thank luck you
2: guys thank you guys very much yeah i think it was the first one as well right it was the very <laughs> first podcast yeah
1: definitely all right well uh cheers jesse and, and thanks for being a good sport good.
2: Bye. cheers guys Have a good night.